Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with health, performance, and how to elevate the human experience. I explore the latest tools, science, and technology with experts in various fields of human optimization. This is your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. If you check this episode out on my YouTube channel, you'll notice that my tongue is blue. Now, why is my tongue blue? Well, I'm taking a nootropic or smurf tropic, if you will, called blue canatine. It helps me with verbal fluency, short-term memory, focus, and keeping up with guys like Dr. James Stray Gunderson. It has four ingredients, nicotine, hemp crystals, caffeine, and methylene blue, which deliver this amazing, limitless-like experience for four to six hours, and there's no come down like some other nootropics. So if you want to try this, head on over to proscriptions.com, use the code BOOMER for 10% off, and let me know how that limitless ride feels. Let's get on with my conversation with Dr. James Stray Gunderson. Today's conversation actually began with a text message or originated with a text message. Dasha Maximov sent me a message and said, hey, you need to try this because it is right up your alley. Shortcutting anabolic responses and exercise. Yes, of course it's right up my alley. And a few minutes later, I was emailing back and forth with my guest today, Dr. James Stray Gunderson. And if you're familiar with that name, you may have heard of Live High, Train Low for which he was the co-author on that paper. But Dr. Stray Gunderson is a world-renowned expert in sports medicine, exercise physiology, and training. Frankly, if I were to read his entire resume, it would take up an entire podcast episode. But drawing from his lifetime of experience with elite-level athletes and clinical populations, Dr. Jim Stray Gunderson is one of the world's leading exercise physiologists who strongly believes that blood flow restriction will revolutionize training and rehabilitation everywhere. In designing the Be Strong system with Sean Whalen, Dr. Stray Gunderson wished to make the most affordable, simple, safe, and effective blood flow restriction training band on the market. And he wanted to share this with as many people as possible. Today, we had a wide-ranging conversation from the origins in the Midwest to his time spent in Europe with Olympic teams, such as the Dutch speed skaters, but also the Norwegian Olympic teams. And we got into blood doping, what that meant, his study of hypoxia, and how that led to his real interest in blood flow restriction training. By the end, we wrap up with the Be Strong training device and why it is one of the most revolutionary fitness devices on the market today. If you want to check out this episode, well, you're checking out this episode, but if you want to check out the show notes, head on over to decodingsuperhuman.com slash drjim. That's decodingsuperhuman.com slash drjim and enjoy my conversation with a sports legend, Dr. James Stray Gunderson. All right. Today's review is called Cutting Edge. I thank the person who left this. They left the review for five stars saying, for anyone interested in how they can be better, this is the podcast for you. 
Boomer dives into difficult issues and decodes the controversies and myths. If you believe human optimization is possible, and if you didn't, you wouldn't be listening to the show, you really need to listen to the show. So thank you to the gentleman who left that show. And if it grabs you in a good way, head on over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's now known, and leave a five-star review because I'll read it on the show. And also, it helps get the word out. Thank you, guys. Dr. Jim, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Boomer. It's nice to be here. You know, when we were chatting beforehand, aside from getting to meet your entire dog family, um, we were talking a little bit about the your experience with the Netherlands speed skating team. And I would love to just understand a little bit more from you. You know, what brought you to being involved with the Netherlands speed skating team? And what was that like for you? Uh, yeah. I would say it's more correct that uh, uh, I've been involved in uh, the International Federation for uh, Speed Skating, which is ISU, mm-hmm. and I, I've been, um, at one time I was uh, on the medical committee for ISU and responsible for putting in our blood testing program or our hematologic passport. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition to that, I've worked... Um, uh, closely with the American, the Canadian, and the Norwegian um, national speed skating teams, both long track and short track. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, in, in that way, I've ended up spending a lot of time at Heronvane, for example, um, and a lot of other ice rinks around Europe. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, also gotten to know many of the uh, Dutch coaches and skaters and doctors and that sort of thing. Um, most recently, um, I was pulled into a case for uh, Yara von Kerkhoff, who's um, she's a uh, short track racer, mm-hmm. and uh, she got falsely involved in a little bit of trouble with her hematologic passport, and mm-hmm. I was uh, happy to be able to get her out of that. In terms of hematologic passport, just for those who are not aware of that, is that some, I'm guessing something to do with the blood testing experience, right? Yeah. Um, basically in the late eighties into the nineties, um, very, or actually earlier than that, but let's just go with that. Um, blood doping became a problem in many sports, including speed skating, cross country mm-hmm. skating, track cycling, um, pretty much anything where you needed sustained activity for more than two or three minutes. And, um, uh, I ended up being part of a group that, um, came up with a testing plan to deter and detect blood doping practices. In short, in short, there's, you can either get transfusions of your own blood or someone else's, or you can take um, these uh, hormones or drugs uh, like uh, EPO that uh, mm-hmm. get you to make your own red blood cells. And um, so um, I was really the medical expert in charge of that with uh, ISU mm-hmm. and if you're dealing with ISU, you're dealing with Dutch speed skating. (laughs) 
before we we go down that anti-doping route, uh, what brought you to speed skating in general? Because I mean, oh. you've been in the field for a while. Yeah, your uh, your Dutch audience will like this. I I grew up in Wisconsin. Um, close I went to University of Minnesota, so we have a little bit of a Big Ten rivalry here. Okay, yeah. Well, I went to I went to Madison, so uh, okay. Uh-oh. The problem, but anyway, I grew up <laughs> outside of uh, Milwaukee and uh, near where the uh, where the one of the few ovals is in the United States or was at that time. And uh, uh, my dad, who uh, emigrated from Norway, uh, had a pair of old speed skates that he used to use. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we would end up uh, uh, going out and trying that just a little bit for fun. Uh, we, of course, followed everything in the various Olympic game, Winter Olympic Games as they were coming up. And uh, then when I was in Madison, actually, um, I would go out onto the lakes and just to skate around. And uh, Eric Hyden and his sister and his mother were out there training. So I hopped in with that. And so this is when I think Eric was 12. So this must have been 1972 or so. And um, anyway, uh since that time have had a uh, hand in U.S. speed skating as well as that evolved into uh, uh, this anti-doping effort and, mm-hmm. and then being a um, uh, expert for various kinds of training. Uh, again, for uh, the U.S., Canadian, and Norwegian teams primarily, mm-hmm. uh, but had some interaction with the Dutch did you at one time live in Norway as well? Yeah. Um, from 1996 to 2002, we uh, lived uh, outside, just on the edge of Oslo. Uh, right. And it was great and um, very much enjoyed that time. I was, I was a professor at the sport college there, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I also worked for the Norwegian Olympic Committee. Very cool. Um, so I want to go back to that anti-doping situation because you mentioned earlier that you know, doping has been an issue in sports for a very long time. And yeah. what sort of, I guess, was this something that was a personal passion of yours in terms of discovering uh, these people yeah. that were doing it? Uh, but also, you know, how did you begin to dig into that stuff? Because so- I believe the initial one was in Finland, right? Yeah, well, the first testing thing, yes. Um, the I growing up in Wisconsin, we did a lot of winter sports, and um, as I um, I got to be pretty close to a national level in in a variety of these things. Um, and then, and then having gone to med school and all that, I ended up uh, being part of these teams more of as a physician uh, mm-hmm. and physiologist as opposed to uh, one of the athletes. But um, in, that, in those roles, I saw that we were getting beat by people who were doing some pretty strange things. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, you kind of have a couple of choices. None of us like to lose. And so, 
uh, either we had to join them or, or somehow arrange to, uh, um, deter their use. And, uh, obviously the ethical choice is to try to deter their use. And Mm. so, um, that was really what started the, the thing at the time there was no blood testing in sport. And um, there's no way to uh, catch blood dopers without testing blood Mm -hmm. uh, some manner or another. So um, that was the first big political battle. Um, And at the time, at at the time I was mainly involved with cross country ski racing. Mm -hmm. And so from the, and then, so instead of ISU as a federation for skating, I was dealing with FIS or the International Ski Federation. And um, we were the first to put in any kind of blood tests uh, for a health check mm-hmm. um, at, in, in our World Cup. Uh, but, you know, that in a way that was somewhat of a victory. And uh, we first did that in 1989. And, uh, uh, at the Lati Nordic World Championships, mm-hmm. and um, basically uh, we ran some tests to uh, check the people's hemoglobin concentration, as well as um, we tested um, the blood for EPO, and we uh, tested what's called a. Uh, partial agglutination reaction, which tests for the use of someone else's blood. And, um, and we didn't catch anybody, or at least of the people that we, we sampled, they were all normal. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, it was a bit of a victory because it was the first time in international sports where we were able to take blood samples Mm -hmm. with it. And, it kind of seems uh, maybe it seems a little silly now, but uh, in my first efforts to get testing put in, I was told, "Oh, you know, it's way too invasive to draw blood on somebody, and you know, what are we going to do with all the medical waste?" And um, you know, and and it's just a lot of nonsensical. Uh, another one was, uh, you know, it was against someone's religion to have blood drawn. Um, <laughs> And anyway, there is a million and one excuses why we couldn't do this. And it was actually a, a good political victory to be able to, to sample blood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, what's, what's behind all this stuff is that um, when you're in the middle of these kind of competitions, um, by the time you're at an Olympic level or an international level, uh, everybody's a good athlete and everybody's skilled and, and there's a set of rules that mm-hmm. people agree to play by. And it was pretty clear to me that, uh, there were particularly certain groups that weren't playing by the rules and, um, that wanted to do what we could to, uh, have them play fairly as, as well as the, in, in, and that would then improve my athletes' abilities to be successful because they really didn't have a chance otherwise. Mm-hmm. And 
If you don't mind, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on the current state of doping in sports, because I'm sure you get that asked this question all the time. Like, has it been reduced or are people getting, if you're willing to, (laughs) yeah, people getting smarter about it, people getting uh, more innovative when it comes to these processes? Um, I, in general, I think things are much, much better than they, Mm -hmm. than they were in the eighties and nineties. Um, there still are ways to beat the system Mm -hmm. Um, and you find those on occasion. Uh, the other aspect of this is that, um, one of the one of the things that the hematologic passport kind of does is it, it's not designed to catch athletes doping. Mm-hmm. It's designed to uh, characterize and identify when big changes happen, and then say, "Well, why is what's going on with this change?" Mm-hmm. And in and in a way, it's like uh, one of the automatic uh, traffic camera boxes where you know everybody's speeding like crazy a mile or a kilometer before that, but they slow down for the box. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so it, it's really like putting a speed limit on things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, so what happens is these are in, this is indirect evidence of doping. And so what happens is if you, wildly dope or, you know, transfuse yourself with five units of blood or whatever, it's going to show up on this as a huge change. Mm -hmm. Now, if you, you know, transfuse a quarter of a unit of blood, uh, the hematologic passport may not even register that this is something different. So one of the nice things about the hematologic passport is that uh, it it kind of confines the athletes that want to cheat into more normal behavior that they Mm -hmm. can get away with and not get caught. And so before you know it, um, they're kind of not cheating very much and not getting very much of an advantage so that um, clean athletes can compete with them. Mm Because one of the big things that um, uh, I saw a lot, is clean athletes coming in fourth or fifth, not winning their medal. But, you know, if they, if they were, if the truth be known, they were actually the best athlete out there and the fittest athlete out there on that day. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a real travesty, both financially and fame and everything else where they don't, they don't receive that recognition. So mm-hmm. that was a driving part to it. And so we, we, we think of rather than kind of good cops and bad or whatever, um, we, we want to essentially, it's, it's not like we're trying to say, okay, you were doping. It's we're trying to say, okay, everybody's got to more or less play on a safe and even playing field. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see to carrying that out so that, you know, there's an even competition. One of the things my audience may not be aware of is that you originally co-authored the paper on live high, train low. And Mm -hmm. I I was, would love to just explore the potential benefits of this for, 
for instance, a cognitive athlete, like could there potentially be benefits for a cognitive athlete in a living high training low scenario? And what would those be? The short answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So when, um, when people, when people go first go to altitude, um, it starts an acclimatization process. Um, and that acclimatization process, the, strangely enough, when someone goes to altitude, their problem is not getting as much oxygen as they needed to. Mm-hmm. And you need oxygen to think and to do pretty much anything. And um, so adaptations are put into place to try to um, mitigate uh, the lack of oxygen that, that may be there. And, uh, we know from, uh, some Russian studies in, the, in the Himalayas where, uh, Russian soldiers would have to go up into Pakistan and India and various places, uh, Nepal where, uh, they're at very high altitudes, their cognitive function would deteriorate such that they were not, operational mm-hmm. and but that if they would spend two to three to four weeks there then all of a sudden these things would come back so whatever adaptations they got from that altitude exposure uh helped them with their cognitive function certainly at altitude and um uh, you know uh, you probably have the same thing coming back for a while so I, I live in the Netherlands, and this is a selfish question, which, you know. Which is the, the, exactly <laughs> at sea level. <laughs> or, or below, right? The joke is, is that God built the world in seven days, and then the eighth day, the Dutch built the Netherlands, right? And so, uh, you know, I have almost the, <laughs> the exact opposite situation that I would want. And in terms of mimicking this live high, train low for a cognitive, my life is predominantly cognitive athletics, if you will, but I do still train like an athlete. Uh, Is there any way to mimic that? Like, are any of these devices worth it? Well, uh, there are nitrogen tents Mm -hmm. that uh, um, were actually first invented in, um, in Yavaskula, Finland by a friend of mine named Heike Rusko. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea is that Finland and the Netherlands don't have mountains high enough to come and visit Park City. So, um, <laughs> which wanted... I've been there and I love going there, but <laughs> it's it's not and exactly the shortest flight in the world. No, but you know, there's a direct flight from Salt Lake to Amsterdam. I've been on that flight a couple of times, actually. Yeah. Um. Anyhow, um, the uh, the um, uh, idea is that you can create these little micro environments that simulate altitude. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, we know they work for increasing uh, red cell mass and, uh, uh, and they can induce the ventilatory changes we see with altitude exposure. I don't know that anybody's really done a lot of cognitive testing before and after or in between mm-hmm. the, see what's going on, but there are ways of simulating altitude at sea level. Mm-hmm. It, if you were to design your own experiment here, wh- what would be kind of the amount of time you'd want to spend in one of these nitrogen tents, if you will, 
um, to try and simulate this and perhaps do that cognitive test? Yeah. So imagine a spectrum uh, of creating hypoxia uh, from putting a plastic bag over your head, pretty small volume, but Mm -hmm. very effective if it's sealed right. And all the way to living in the mountains where everything's hypoxic. So somewhere in that spectrum is the situation that works for the individual uh, depending on where they happen to be. And um, then the next overlay is, okay, if I, I, and generally if you're creating these situations, you want to live there for a substantial length of time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're going to convert your bedroom to a nitrogen room, for example, um, you know, the intention is to be there for months mm-hmm. and, um, and yet one has to balance the volume of space you're making hypoxic with the psychological cost of being cooped up into something. So it's, we've all felt that recently, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, so here in park city where I get outside and you know, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. That's very nice psychological situation where if I had to be confined to a room, I mean, that isn't so nice. And, um, and if that, if that in that room, it was, you had to spend 12 out of 24 hours, maybe it gets doable. Mm -hmm. Um, but then one of the things that's on the market are basically little camping tents that you can do this with and, or things that you just put over your bed and that, (laughs) spending significant time in there um, has its psychological cost. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to figure out what's right for you with, with all this stuff. Okay. And then once you come down from altitude, is there a particular length of time that before you just adapt and go back to quote unquote normal for that? So different adaptations come and go at different rates. Mm-hmm. So generally it takes about four weeks to have a significant increase in red cell mass. Mm-hmm. And you have that significant increase or a benefit for about four weeks after you leave. Um, with the ventilatory adaptations that happen, uh, they usually come within a week and they're usually gone within a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, come down. So, um, there's lots of little small things that, that probably can't be studied. Um, one of the things that's a common observation for whatever reason is that people that have spent time at altitude um, adapt really quickly when they come back to altitude mm-hmm. again. And now whether that's they've kind of learned how to behave or uh, there's some residual adaptations, um, who knows, maybe both. So... Where does blood flow restriction training come into this entire picture? Because yeah. you've had this massive career in performance sports. At what so, point did you discover this? Uh, specifically, I became aware of, of the original Japanese version, Katsu, uh, back in uh, 2000, 
uh, probably 11. Mm -hmm. uh, but it wasn't so much of that. So I would say a common thread throughout my career has been the use of hypoxia uh, one way or another. In the case of blood doping, obviously increasing red cell mass is a way of delivering more oxygen to the tissues that need it. And altitude training is about being hypoxic and having the proper adaptations happen there. Uh, think about blood flow restriction training. It's another way of inducing local hypoxia in the mm -hmm. working tissues while leaving the brain and the heart and the rest of the organs to get the normal oxygenated uh, uh, blood. And so, so it, it ends up being a very interesting tool to start separating kind of the systemic from the local effects of hypoxia. And from and that's what the attraction is from a scientific standpoint. And you've spent time in Japan studying this, I believe, right? Uh -huh. Right. And so, I, I guess you know, looking at just the wide range of benefits in terms of uh, blood flow restriction training. Before we get into that, um, just kind of, if you don't mind explaining to people exactly what the, what is blood flow restriction training and, yeah. you know, why, why we should be interested? Yeah. Uh, great questions. Um, the short answer is that it's anti-aging medicine. Okay. That's something that's going to light up a few people that are listening to this, by yeah. the way. Right. And, and, and it should, cause this is really, uh, the cat's meow in terms of, uh, um, us, us optimizing our health span and our lifespan. Mm -hmm. uh, but let me sort of get in because it, it's actually, uh, there's two things. One is science has not fully understood how the body adapts to exercise stimuli. And some recent things and I uh, actually work over the last 20 or 30 years uh, at, at my institution in Dallas at uh, UT Southwestern, um, provided a background to really understanding some, uh, some of these things, what, what produced what. And, um, and you know, so we all kind of have this image in our head, if you want to get good at something physical, you ought to go do that thing. And then you get mm -hmm. better at it. And um, that is kind of the standard approach with weight training, where let's say you want to get strong biceps, you end up doing bicep curls. And mm -hmm. the idea is that you're training that bicep muscle and its tendons and everything else to be able to do more work. Um, it turns out that um, uh, and we've all heard from our training backgrounds, or at least American football players have about no pain, no gain. And, you know, uh, I had that drilled in my head growing up. Okay, there you go. And the thing is, that's not right. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, it is if you start flipping things around. So um, we're not talking about pain, but the way that the body adapts to physical stress is 
it's sensing what's going on in those tissues um, from sensory nerves. And those sensory nerves take information back to the brain that something is happening. And usually if you're uh, exercising hard or long or that sort of thing, um, the, the tissues that are working send this signal to the brain that's saying, hey, guys, this isn't a lot of fun here. We, but we ought to stop at mile 20 or, you know, let's, uh, let's put that 300-pound weight down. And um, that fatigue signal ends up not only letting the organism know that they're fatiguing, but it is also the initiation of the processes that will then rebuild the tissue and, and take it, take it even farther. So, so what happens is, and the body does this with a lot of different things. There's sometimes a signal is an alarm signal, but it's Mm -hmm. also a stimulus to produce um, the solution for whatever the problem might've been. And um, so what be strong training does and BFR training in general is supposed to do is it biohacks or um, uh, sends, sends a signal to the brain to adapt without having done the long or intense exercise it takes to send that signal normally. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't have to be out at mile 20 on your marathon. Um, you can in, and you were saying in 15, 20 minutes, you can get a full workout and profound feelings of fatigue, mm-hmm. but it was from a combination of light, otherwise easy exercise plus, uh, restricting or not letting the working tissue get all the blood and oxygen they need to sustain the work. Mm-hmm. So that combination has created a, what I call a disturbance of homeostasis in the working tissue. Mm-hmm. And there's various biochemical things that are associated with that, but suffice it to say that that disturbance of homeostasis, number one is sensed by the brain, but also in itself starts local uh, upregulation of protein synthesis and a lot of other things, trying to repair the damage it thought was being done. The mm-hmm. trick is we really didn't do any damage. Yeah. And so you start adapting and getting better right from the get-go. And in as few as three to five to seven workouts, you can notice significant improvement in strength and ability to do things. Mm-hmm. So. so you kind of hit a, a very strong buzzword with this audience, which is 15 to 20 minutes. And wow, I can get a complete workout and it's extremely effective. Now, there's a few things that I would love to just kind of follow on and double click here. Uh, on those various uh, mechanisms that actually cause this to work, you, you touched on one with kind of protein synthesis, but what are some of the other things that happen within the muscle that, because we're not tearing muscle here necessarily, if I understand that right, mm-hmm. what other things are going on that cause people, because when I came across blood flow restriction training, it was that bodybuilding crew that was really using it to get quote unquote swole. Um, but what are some of the things that are going on that help build that muscle in such a short time? By the end of this episode, you may get really, really excited about Be Strong. You may get really excited about blood flow restriction training. And you may wonder, where can I check this thing out? 
head on over to bestrong.training and use the code BOOMER for 10% off because I've used it for the past month and I absolutely love it. And you guys will too. It fits in my suitcase. It goes with me everywhere and I use it every day as we're going to discuss here in a little bit. And I don't have the need to have rest days, which is amazing for habit building. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Dr. James Stray Gunderson. Yeah. So essentially, we're tipping the balance between buildup of tissue and breakdown of tissue. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're kind of optimizing things. Not only uh, does the disturbance of homeostasis and, and for example, those things include a drop in the pH or the, ac- the amount of acid increases in, in a cell, uh, the PO2 or the amount of oxygen goes down in that cell. Um, very, and uh, shortly, the cell starts to run out of ATP or intracellular phosphates, really the energy currency uh, of the cell. And um, when you get low levels of intracellular phosphate, then electrolyte gradients don't work right and all, all sorts of things. You start going outside of these ranges of parameters where things can work right. And um, that in and of itself is a stimulus to protein synthesis in the cell to try to fix these problems. Uh, in addition, um, it also starts a process where we increase the number of uh, anabolic hormone cell receptors on, on the surface of the, of the cell so that any anabolic hormones or anything else that are coming along are more likely to bind to that cell and more likely to amplify uh, the anabolic processes that are going on. And so one of the things that we do know is that a um, uh, Katsu work, or the study was done with Katsu, is that uh, 15 to 20 minutes after a decent Katsu workout, you increase uh, growth hormone uh, production from your brain. And growth hormone, in turn, stimulates the liver to make more uh, IGF-1 or insulin growth factor 1. In addition, it stimulates the testes to produce more testosterone. Uh, All of these things, if you will, there's an anabolic or building milieu that is created that amplifies um, anything that was going on. Now, in addition to that, um, one of the things that we do with blood flow restriction training is we modify, we basically distend the veins and the capillaries and, and not much happens to the arteries under the right circumstance. But um, we end up, when we do exercise, imagine we have this extremity that's full of blood because it's kind of gotten backed up. And then you do a muscle contraction and that muscle contraction squeezes this blood out and puts it back into the central circulation. And so what you have with capillaries and veins is you have all this distension and emptying of these walls. And that actually causes uh, a series of things to build new and better blood vessels or new and better endothelium. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's a big part of the anti-aging thing. 
Mm-hmm. So when we're built and uh, this has been done, there's a paper by a guy named Larkin that was in medicine, science, sports, and exercise, I believe in 2014, 2015. Anyway, he looked at um, uh, increases in mRNA or the initial building block for a particular kind of protein, uh, specifically for uh, VEGF, uh, HIF1 alpha, nitric oxide synthetase, isoforms, and all of these things are critical components to building new and better blood vessels. And he found that these things uh, were sometimes tenfold um, stimulated uh, by blood flow restriction training compared to normal training alone or the same kind of work alone. Mm -hmm. So um, we know that we have very powerful or we have data that says we have very powerful stimuli to uh, increase size and strength of muscle, to uh, decrease fat mass or to mobilize fat stores and decrease fat stores, and to build new and better blood vessels. There's also information that we can improve bone density as well as improve the uh, tensile strength of tendons and ligaments. Mm-hmm. There's even a rat study that uh, showed that uh, uh, a version of blood flow restriction training in a rat where they tie off the femoral artery. Yeah, I was going to ask how that actually works with a rat, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it, it, it ends up cutting down. It doesn't cut all. It restricts blood flow into the extremity mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the rats can't run anymore, but they can, they can um, uh, walk around just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of the collateral circulation. So, uh, but what they were looking at in this study is they found that um, the density of uh, nerve receptors on, on muscle membranes, as well as the number of um, synaptic vesicles on nerve fibers was increased. Uh, these are called nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. Uh, and the way that nerves transmit is that there's these little vesicles in the nerve ending that release acetylcholine into the space between the nerve and the muscle uh, surface. And the acetylcholine goes and binds to these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And in that way, propagates the bioelectric uh, force or contraction that, that that's about to happen. And, um, and they did this study in aging rats. Mm-hmm. And what we know that happens with aging, it's kind of on this lose it, or if you don't use it, you lose it idea, is that the density of these kind of uh, nerve receptors uh, was decreased with age in humans and in everything else. And they found a way in a rat to stimulate um, increasing the density of these things. The idea being that uh, if you have more uh, or a higher density of these nerve receptors, you're more coordinated, uh, you can get more contractile uh, efforts going and everything else. So nerves, bones, tendons, ligaments, muscles, blood vessels, pretty much everything in the extremity, fat, uh, all of these things show adaptations that are associated with uh, essentially anti-aging. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's very, very nice story, actually. And, and, 
And I, I would say the crux is, and you know, you point to this 15 to 20 minutes, the crux is we found a way, all of these adaptations happen with athletics, but you have to be doing, you know, hundred mile weeks or, yeah. you know, doing things that by the time you get to be my age, you just can't do anymore. And uh, so this in a very time efficient manner recreates the really good things that happened when you were able to do 10 hours or 20 hours of training in a week. Mm-hmm. And for those of us that have jobs and families <laughs> and don't have two to three hours a day to spend in the gym. Yeah, exactly. So, um, be strong as a solution to getting that kind of good, uh, regular exercise that stimulates adaptation, um, uh, to produce a good, healthy lifespan. Wondering if you're willing to just hypothesize or just think through this, if there hasn't been any studies, um, because some of the therapeutic effects you mentioned, things like improvements in vascularity, bone density, et cetera, have direct implications for some pretty large problems within society. Has there been any studies with effects of this on things like cardiovascular disease? Obviously, I think osteopenia is a given or osteoporosis, but those types of diseases. Yeah, some, um, they, they use, uh, Katsu for, um, uh, cardiac rehab in Japan. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they, uh, feel that it's better than normal exercise, partially because it's not as hard and partially because you can get a, a better perturbation of the system with blood flow restriction training than you can normally. Um, the other thing to say is that, and this is more of a North American problem than a European or Japanese problem, but we, there's, there's something called metabolic syndrome or metabolic X, which is being overweight, having a high cholesterol, having a high blood pressure, and having a, a, a high blood sugar or diabetes. And this is a constellation of things that come from basically no regular exercise and a typical American diet. And, um, or I should say a a relatively high fat, high protein, low carbohydrate diet that um, uh, ends up using a lot of animal products, but that's a whole nother story. <laughs> Another episode but, with you, Dr. Jim there. Um, but um, there's preliminary data that a B strong training uh, program uh, mitigates all of these factors. It reduces body fat. It reduces blood pressure. It reduces um, or improves glucose control and, and it improves lipid profile. So, um, but so does normal regular exercise if you do enough of it. Mm-hmm. And again, we get back to this thing of um, we've maybe stumbled upon a method for everybody to get in the regular exercise they need in a very convenient way, whether it's at home, at work, on the road, a hotel room, uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, to get the benefits they need from regular exercise to have a healthy lifestyle. 
because, well, we haven't yet, but you made some innovations on blood flow restriction training. Do you mind just discussing how the Be Strong uh, device differs from uh, anything from just like putting wraps around your arm to other but, things? Right. So, so that's, you know, that's, it's kind of funny. That's where a lot of this stuff started. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, taking a judo belt and wrapping it around an extremity multiple times, mm-hmm. kind of cranking it down. And um, that's associated with problems. And there's, there's a lot of guys in the gym who are taking Cub Scout belts and everything else and kind of cranking them on and uh, saying, oh, I'm doing blood flow restriction training. And it's not really effective and it's not really safe to do it that way. And so one of the first big innovations that um, Sato made was he, 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 he actually used a uh, bicycle inner tube, you know, where uh, he used that to inflate. And by inflating that to a certain amount or a certain pressure, he could get to a reproducible amount of blood flow restriction each time from mm-hmm. person to person and from within the same person from one time to another, uh, where none of these inf- previously uh, systems that did really have a capability of being inflated or a bladder, uh, you know, it was kind of all over the place. You, you, you got it right one day and you didn't get it right the next day. And um, so that happened for a while. And then um, – Actually, a bunch of people in the West started seeing what Katsu was doing and thought they knew what the device was. So they went out, ran out, and got a whole blood pressure cuffs, mm-hmm. which didn't have that inflatable thing. Um, but uh, blood pressure cuffs differ from Be Strong and Katsu in that uh, once you put the blood pressure cuff on, the, the, um, the volume inside the cylinder that's contained by that cuff can't change. Mm-hmm. So it's it what, what I refer to as a rigid system. Yeah. And then what happens is when you blow in or inflate a bladder within a rigid system, you know, something's got to give somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, the first thing that happens is you collapse the veins because they're a pretty low pressure system. And so you collapse the veins. And then by the time you get over um, arterial blood pressure, you've occluded the, the um, arteries as well. Um, but beyond that, there's not much else that can leave this cylinder that's contained by this, by this rigid outer cuff. And so when you exercise, um, muscle swell, just mm-hmm. normal. And, uh, also as you're, as you're doing a contraction, uh, the muscle is shortening and it, but it's getting fatter. Mm-hmm. So now all of a sudden you're taking up more space in this cylinder that is contained. And one of the things that Sato did in one way, we did in another way, uh, which is to make it uh, have elasticity to this outer outer circuit. Mm-hmm. And, and that really uh, creates a safe and very effective way of doing blood flow restriction training. So 
you know, two, two big things. One, the inflatable aspect so that you could control how much pressure was going on. And then secondly, the elastic aspect uh, to accommodate muscle contraction and muscle swelling as it goes and to only really um, restrict the venous outflow and still allow arterial inflow, which is, is key to safety. So, um, and uh, none of the other systems do that except for Katsu and Be Strong. And uh, we do them in different ways where when you inflate, when you inflate our device, uh, it actually, the whole band kind of contracts and mm-hmm. helps with the blood flow restriction, uh, where when you inflate a Katsu device, it, it expands and stretches in kind of all dimensions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the big difference between us. But uh, the kind of so what of that is that it turns out that um, uh, we're much better at the way that we have this design, there's, there's a limited amount of contraction that can happen. And that's small enough so that uh, no matter how high you run the pressure, really, uh, you're not going to get any more um, compromise of the volume in the cylinder. And we've done it in a way where it, uh, it, it ensures um, the arterial inflow into a, into an extremity is maintained which is a really big deal. It sounds a little weird, but it's, it's a really big deal for making a safe system. Yeah. Uh, can I just double click on that for a second? Because uh, if I'm hearing that correctly, you guys have a web app, which explains how to set this up and sort of the ideal pressures yeah. for the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, if I read what you said correctly or heard, uh, cause I'm not reading right now. Um, if can I over pump the system and therefore create this situation of occlusion or is that impossible to do? You know, you never want to say anything's impossible, Mm -hmm. but under normal circumstances, placing the bands in the right place, using our pump that has a limit of 500 millimeter, 500 millimeters of mercury. uh, You, you can pump, you can, our recommendations typically for arms are, it might be from 200 to 250, but you can go to 500 and still have, have uh, the arterial inflow maintained. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, we end up, you know, these absolute statements are, are they're dangerous. I know, <laughs> but uh, if the bands are put in the proper locations and our pumps our, our pump is used and our recommendations follow. Uh, it's virtually impossible to uh, occlude arterial inflow. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the muscle isn't necessarily tearing, can I use it every day? Yeah. So uh, one of the big things um, that a lot of the power sport athletes found, whether it was bodybuilding or or uh, weightlifting, or for example, alpine skiing, in my case, that we're very involved with, uh, they normally would have have 48 hours between uh, really hard, intense workouts, again, Mm -hmm. because some muscle was damaged in the course of the the workout. With, With Be Strong, instead of every other day, you can do two workouts a day if you wanted to. 
mm-hmm. and you recover quicker from them. And if you're getting, if you're getting, let's say four times the, the impulse or the stimulus to move forward, you're going to end up adapt, you know, adapt quicker. And particularly if you haven't done any of the damage in the first place. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and then another factor is, is kind of age. And as we age, we're less tolerant of hard work. And so what I would say is that uh, athletes who are used to training in their 20s and 30s, they might do two B strong sessions a day, mm-hmm. uh, kind of recreational or everyday folk between, I don't know, 40 and 60. Maybe they, they do uh, five days a week, mm-hmm. or maybe it's they end up finding out that three is as much as they really feel good about handling. And it it has to take into consideration all the other things that are going on in their lives. And, um, but it's kind of nice to get into a uh, weekday routine of first thing in the morning, you do 15 to 20 minutes and you're off, you know, just like you brush your teeth and you're, and you're off on on a good, uh, good path. Um, I would say that the elderly, you know, 80s, you know, elderly is getting older as, as I am. But uh, um, uh, people in their 80s end up kind of drifting into about twice a week as what's right for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, on the, the two sessions a day, uh, you know, which is, by the way, how you outlined it in terms of waking up and basically, instead of brushing my teeth, I put on the Be Strong. Um, I do brush my teeth eventually. Oh, brush, brush your teeth too, Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we have this Zoom because then you couldn't smell my breath. I, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, but uh, in terms of other exercise, because there is a, a lot of people listening to this, myself included, that have this sort of Puritan work ethic and feel like they have this need to run, swim, jump, all of this stuff. Yeah. Is anything else fundamentally needed or is that just sort of added bonus afterwards? No. Um, well, there, there, there's, I think there's lots of reasons to exercise. One of, one of the reasons to go cycling or jogging or playing tennis or soccer slash football, whatever, um, is because it's fun. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, then another component of this is usually, maybe not so much when we're younger, but as we age, we need to be doing fitness activities so that we can enjoy these. They're they're certainly exercise activities, but they're the, the basis for them is fun, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and and health for that for that matter, and. Uh, um, the lifestyle that I would recommend creating is one in which, you know, you kind of get the chores over with in the morning. First thing, mm-hmm. include a be strong session. 15 minutes is good enough on a daily basis. And, uh, and then go about the rest of your day. And if, if that day called for a, a 10, 10 kilometer jog, great. Or a hundred kilometer bike ride. Great. Um, you know, whatever, whatever the rest of your other, otherwise your life was about. Mm-hmm. So what's the significance of the lightweight? Like, because 
you know, I, I did do powerlifting for quite a long time. And there is that inner egoic thing that, you know, you want to pick up something heavy. And, but with yeah. this, you know, it's high reps, low weight. What's the significance? The other thing we're going to do with you, boomers, we're going to paint your weights pink. And, and <laughs> yeah, I, I am painting, I am painting quite the image of myself. And I know this is the first time we met, but I, I'm, I'm totally fine with pink weights. Let's do it. Okay. So, so the, I, here, and here's, here's what a lot of weightlifters and bodybuilders that have gotten into this do is they may test themselves with normal lifting workouts once a week or once every 10 days more or less as a test to see how they're doing. And if they've been doing be strong, all of a sudden their, their max reps are, or their max, uh, their one rep max is going up and they're just piddling around with dinky little things. And generally we use for, for those people that are lifting, uh, we say that anywhere from 20 to 30% of one rep max is mm-hmm. the right amount of weight, which for anybody that's really lifted, are you, are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. I'm not going to get stronger doing that. But that's really the key here because what, what we're doing, normally when you're doing heavy lifting, uh, maximal lifting, you have to recruit pretty much the whole muscle to get the, to move the weight mm-hmm. or whatever muscles are involved in the lift. And, um, with be strong, what happens is we're just recruiting the easiest, um, uh, recruited fibers and we're getting them because they're not, and they're usually the most dependent on blood flow, Mm -hmm. but we've restricted that blood flow. So they get into metabolic trouble and they get to a point where they can't maintain if, if, if the, the guy in the, in the brain is saying, I want you to continue doing that. They have to use other fibers to get that done. And so before you know it, you start recruiting all the fibers in the muscle. And as you get deeper and deeper into fast twitch populations, uh, they are less and less vascularized and mm-hmm. get into metabolic trouble quicker than they usually the most uh, thing. And so you end up creating this, uh, disturbance of homeostasis and this cascade that goes through the entire motor unit. And um, that's the way that you end up uh, stimulating adaptation and even, even the fastest twitch fibers. And we, we, we know this because there have been muscle biopsy studies that look at, you know, one measure of uh, the use of a fiber is that um uh, it's, it's become glycogen depleted from, uh, the work it's done. And we, we can see that with elastic BFR training, we can deplete all the fibers in a particular, uh, muscle. So we know we're getting into those, uh, faster twitch populations mm-hmm. and stimulating those fibers that you can either do with a heavy, heavy lift, or you can do with a combination of a light lift and blood flow restriction end up producing that uh, uh, stimulus for adaptation. And one of the things is, and I'm sure you can relate to this, is, you know, let's say you're doing some heavy squat or something, and you're saying, well, can I, you know, I add another, you know, 10 kilos onto the bar or not. And then maybe you get into the weight and 
you get through one rep and you go, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that second rep or whatever. With blood flow restriction training, you may be doing squats with just the bar and, and really getting fatigued. And, and, but it's, you're able to take that risk of doing that last or that last two reps because it's no big deal if you drop the bar where if you lose control of, you know, 200 kilos over your head, that ends up being a problem. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually press yourself into a greater degree of fatigue with, uh, with uh, blood flow restriction training than, than otherwise. And if you do happen to lose control of the weight, you're not going to hurt your back or drop it on your foot or your throat or whatever. My, my L4, L5 thanks you already. Um, <laughs> there you go. In terms of just one last question before we go into just some final rapid fire questions. Uh, the effects of this, are they systemic or should I be doing training splits of kind of upper, lower? Uh, how do you look at that? Uh, my short answer is both. Okay. Uh, there are definitely local effects and to get specific adaptation for let's say specific lifts, you're going to want to do those lifts. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, the big key to this thing is the systemic effect of inducing this anabolic uh, hormonal cascade. So both. Thank you uh, for all of this, Dr. Jim. And uh, just a huge debt of gratitude before I get to those questions, because this device, I, I've enjoyed it. It's I like changing workouts from time to time, but like there's something about the Be Strong. One, I could throw it in my carry-on, which is extremely important to me. Um, and I don't need much in terms of accessories with it. You mentioned the pink dumbbells, if you will. Um, but you know, bands, whatever it is, I can use. And you don't need much, and you can do it everywhere. I've done it on Zoom video calls. You and- can get a you can get a workout in in the time it would normally take you to get to the health club. Yeah, it's crazy. And you know, I haven't done the two a days yet, but you've seeded the idea with me, so I'm probably going to do that very soon. So thank you for I, this. You can also, you can also get on that bike behind you. I, I probably. I haven't done that again. Another great idea. So yeah. uh, I'll let you know how that goes. Maybe I'll post a video on that one too. Okay. Uh, final rapid fire questions for you. What excites you about, or what excites you most about the health world right now? Uh, uh, okay. So, um, the deal used to be um, some line came along and bit you in the leg and you sought out the doctor to try to fix the damage that the lion did or you were skiing and you hurt your knee or whatever. And so this, uh, or you developed a fever and you got sick. So then you sought out medical help to deal with a specific uh, health issue. And that and that's evolved into heart attacks and all sorts of other things that that in my mind are uh, labeled disease care. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I'm excited about is that we're, the world is transitioning into something that I would call healthcare, although 
it's a little bit different definition. And that basically is, is um, prudent and responsible nutrition mm -hmm. as well as regular exercise in various forms. And then can throw in not smoking and not riding motorcycles and uh, don't do drugs and those sorts of things that maybe are, sleeping a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah. and, and so it, we're starting to transition into what we should all be about, which is maximizing our health span mm -hmm. uh, uh, while still dealing with the occasional uh, pandemic that comes along or, or uh, uh, heart attacks or that kind of thing uh, mm -hmm. from uh, a a um, uh, institution or I don't know what you want to call it that's been focused on dealing with problems as opposed to what amounts to preventive medicine or um, uh, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I think Be Strong has a very big place in being able to deliver that uh, daily dose of uh, exercise as medicine for, uh, for the population, for pretty much everybody. And particularly for those, those people whose lifestyles end up, uh, making them press for time to, to get that stuff done. Book, which has most impacted your life. I'm sorry, what? The book, which has most impacted oh. your life. <laughs> wow. Oh, there's a bunch. You can go with more than one too. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, books that impacted my, there, I ran into these while I was in med school and in my residency. Um, but things like death, be not proud, um, by Kubler Ross. Um, there's another book uh, that's the title is um forgive and remember uh which is about um and, you know I, the old the expression is forgive and forget but uh, uh here we want to forgive and remember and it and it's and it's about um uh physicians in a medical center and and what they have to do with the various things that they run into um Another set of books that I really liked a lot um, was um, uh, done by Carlos Castaneda. About mm -hmm. uh, it's about a um, uh, basically uh, southwestern and Mexican um, shamanism and ways to achieve spiritual um, perfection mm -hmm. uh, that that. I think have served me well. Um, a couple other philosophers. I don't know. I, I don't read a lot of novels. Mm -hmm. Just the things I read are generally scientific papers. And I don't know that they move me terribly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your top trick for enhancing your focus? If you have one. Uh, I don't know. Just uh, uh, trying to trying to lead a healthy lifestyle. I would 
guess. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Jim, where can people find out more about you and this fantastic device that you've created? Well, I would direct them to our website, mm -hmm. the letter B strong dot training. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's pretty much the best place these days to, to go for things. Amazing. Uh, Dr. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been an absolute pleasure and really big education for me. So uh, thank you again for everything you do and the device you've created. It's fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Boomer. It's a pleasure to speak with you and happy to do it again. To all the superhumans listening out there, have an epic day. Okay. There are some episodes that just leave me saying, wow, and that's one of them. Dr. Stray Gunderson did not disappoint, did he? And why would we think he would? Because he's done so much in the world of sports. I love the conversation about live high, train low, and how it applies to the cognitive athlete. I enjoyed learning so much from him about blood flow restriction training, so much so that we're going to have another episode on the Be Strong device very, very soon. The show notes for this one are at decodingsuperhuman.com slash drjim, that's Dr. Jim. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it on the social medias, tell a friend, and tag Decoding Superhuman, because I really appreciate you and want to acknowledge you. Thank you for listening. Have an absolutely epic day and choose 